other anarchist philosophies and stuff. It's uh, when you get in, especially when you get into the prepping stuff. There's a lot of like flag worship and state worship and all that stuff. So, yeah, it's like uh, felt there needed to be a place for people to uh, get that that type of information, but not have to deal with all that baggage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let's get things started. So I'll, I'll do a quick intro and then we can uh, get into it. Uh, all right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Sample Hour. Um, today, I, I'm uh, honored to have a Facebook friend, and uh, you may have heard him from uh, in School Sucks podcast, uh, Autonomy Through Agorism uh, series. Um, I can't speak English. Sorry about that, Jamin. Uh, no, sorry. <laughs> but uh, um, so, if you guys don't know who he is, you should check him out on Facebook. He has a. Uh, what is it? What's the Jamin? What's the group called? It's Agoria or on it's Facebook? It's a it's Agora at Agricola. Agro, yeah, Agora Agricola. Um, he also is coming out with a new project as well, which is uh, and what's what's you're actually coming out with a bunch of projects, man. So I don't I don't want to just uh, just ruin that now. We can get into that in the show. Okay, um, cool, man. Um, but uh, his name is Jamin. Is it, it's Baconic? Yes. Oh man, I'm so proud I didn't butcher your name, man. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a rarity. <laughs> well, I, I I decided to use phonetics and just sound it out. It sounds crazy to do, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, with all the crazy rules with uh, English grammar. Yeah, and then, um, but also, I mean, you're you guys. I mean, you guys do so much, so it's hard to really kind of I think encompass like everything that you're doing just in a quick intro, but. Uh, because you guys are also, you know, you guys also uh, um, are, are, are micro farmers to an extent. Um, you guys are trying to get off the grid. Um, there's a, what all do you and your wife do? I mean, so, well, let's just start, like, how did uh, you and your wife kind of kind of get on this path? Well, um, let me see. It really started, like, we started hanging out with each other in high school. And uh, we had some common interest with uh, medicinal herbs and stuff like that. So we basically uh, would just go into the woods and, you know, try to identify plants and, you know, um, find useful things. And we got hooked up with this local guy who uh, actually collected uh, wild, wild-crafted herbs for uh, pharmaceutical companies. So he took us out and... Uh, you know, showed us a bunch of different patches of different plants and, uh, you know, kind of like a guide. And uh, the I've always been um, a bit of a prepper. Um, yeah. Long enough ago, back when they were called survivalists at least. So I kind of always wanted to uh, have the capability to provide um, – provide my own sustenance in, you know, case of disaster or whatnot. So, I mean, that's really where, really where we were coming from. And eventually just kind of everything, uh, everything merged together. And we decided that we should be doing that type of stuff here and now. And, uh, really that it was a, it was a path to, to some more autonomy, really. Yeah. Well, I mean, because, you know, it's just really being like locally resilient in an extent as well. Like not, uh, not, not being, not just being, I mean, like I think when you, when I think of freedom, you know, it's not, you know, it's, it's, I think it, you have to encompass like all aspects of your life, you know, like, am I dependent on somebody else for my food? Am I dependent on somebody else for, um, something else? And I think, you know, when you, when you, when you kind of like get out, step outside the box and just really just start trying to to be you know self-sustainable i think it i think that's that's kind of what you guys are going for right yeah um originally it was to have that capability if we needed to yeah and now it's uh we really want to just go for it and uh be sustainable um there's definitely a uh you know there is autonomy trade-offs because when you're when you have all these projects going, it's not like you have the freedom to just leave and do things. Yeah. So um, it's it's basically you know we try to find that balance of uh, 
the amount of labor we put into things versus the uh, the returns we get, and try to make that favorable. And uh, we we don't like we don't want to be uh, you know like compared to like let's say people who are completely self-sustainable and off the grid like let's say the Amish maybe yeah and uh, and Luddites like we definitely don't want to go that far but at the same time we would like to be able to uh, take care of the majority of our sustenance yeah absolutely um, you know something you said about uh, like just all your own projects that's something uh, Nathan Fraser and I kind of joke about that we uh, we became slaves to ourselves like in a sense of like our own ambitions. Oh, exactly. Because I mean, you're working on more than just um, you know uh, agricultural stuff like like micro farming, but I mean, like you're also working on. Um, uh, well, what's your new project? That new open source project you have, like the the, uh, the knowledge uh, uh, it's, education uh, program. Um, the first one is the Neuron um, Open Source Learning Station project. And what that basically is, is I've taken a, uh, a collection of open source educational projects and put them all together in a single inexpensive box that uh, is self-contained. I'm, I'm using um, refurbished laptops, and they start at 100 bucks. So basically it's... Uh, it's really ha it really has something for everybody, but it's targeted towards home educated children. That's pretty um, cool. It uh, man, it it's like it's massive to try to explain to people because it's really the um, I don't know, culmination of a bunch of different open source projects like like what I'm doing, like for instance, it has, uh, has sugar installed. And what sugar is, sugar is the entire system of what is on the one laptop per child systems that, okay. um, basically if you're not familiar with that project, it was a project to, um, educate third wor world children in how to use information technology. And what they did is they made a really simplified interface that is uh, really unique and it's made to uh, foster collaboration and stuff and networking and every kid was supposed to have a laptop and be able to connect to this and do these digital activities which were teaching them um, computer usage and coding and you know everything to be literate in the in our current time here yeah um, and then on top of that it has uh, uh, Debian EDU which is a uh, specific set of applications for using Linux in school systems. And on top of that, it has Debian Junior, which is another early learning um, package of, of applications. But what really makes this different than just buying a computer with Debian Linux on it with some packages I've uh, I've made some custom interfaces for the different age groups that are going to use it. I made a custom interface, like you can log directly into this program called GCompre, um, which is a uh, early learning program that is just it has like over a hundred educational activities. It's just massive, but it's for uh, toddlers and uh, you know slightly older kids. And then you have a uh, a higher level account that you can log into that is a simplified desktop user interface, you know, with like big colorful cartoony buttons and it's, you know, it's training worlds to use a modern graphical interface. That's pretty cool, man. Um, so what kind of inspired you to want to do that? Was it just because you have, I mean, you have kids as well. And I mean, was it, was it mainly just to, you know, you wanted to have something for them. So then you were like, you know, I want to create this. Well, I mean, that's that's kind of what got me to uh, to do it now, but I've been kicking an idea like this around for years. Um, I actually originally was um, 
wanting to build and market what I was calling survival information terminals. And basically, I was ripping all the free information off the net that had uh, prepper utility and wanting to put them on inexpensive laptops and couple them with a solar power, solar panel and battery. So basically, you would have you know the, the knowledge of civilization in a little box that was solar powder, powered. Um, so really, eventually, that's going to happen too. But um, recently, I did, I did build the, a couple systems for my own kids, and I just realized how accessible everything is now and how inexpensive you can get really, you know, relatively high-powered computer hardware when you think about it in the whole scheme of things um, that can run, run these applications. So, I mean, that's pretty much why I, I'm doing it now. I mean, I had, it was, <laughs> my original inspiration was the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Like, my original prototypes for the survival information terminals had big dope panic stickers on them. <laughs> you know, I was making the Hitchhiker's Guide. That's pretty awesome. That's a great, that's a great book. Um, I just and got the, I just That was like in Audible. 2003 or something. Yeah, the movie came out too, and I think the movie came out like 2004 with uh, Sam Rockwell. It was oh, okay. Yeah. The movie I like Sam Rockwell and I like the actors in it, but the movie I don't know. That's that type of book. It's hard to to cut down into two hours and just mainstream it for everybody. Oh, exactly. Yeah. But that's that's pretty awesome. And then you're also doing um, a uh, DAWs system, which is a, a what is it? It's a desktop audio workstation. Yeah, digital audio digital workstation. Audio workstation, yeah. Um, um, and and the two projects are going to uh, eventually merge. There's no reason why I can't include everything that's on the Neuron on the DAWs. Um, and one of the DAWs is going to be sp specifically for mobile podcasting. And I just have to work some issues out with uh, some of the client programs for the different voiceover IP options you have, like the issues that we had doing the podcast here. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. There's basically two main camps of uh, audio in in Linux, okay, there's a camp that is focused towards professional audio production, and that means very low latency and uh, very high accuracy and um, high sample rates and everything like that. And that subsystem in Linux is excellent. It is above and beyond Windows or Mac. Then there's another camp that is specifically focused towards, home, you know, like home and business applications and their audio needs, which are slightly different, and they don't want to make the sacrifices that you make for connectivity and everything like that for the pro audio stuff. So it's just trying to get those projects to work together can be a hassle, especially when you have a third party like Microsoft that pulls the carpet out from under your feet and eliminates support for the one major project in their newest release of Skype. Yeah. Yeah, Microsoft sucks. Fuck Microsoft. <laughs> yeah, word. So, how did you? So, so, um, when did you start taking an interest in computers? Like, when did uh, because a lot of people don't uh, go down the road of Linux because of the the multiple headaches of having to figure shit out on your own. Like, what uh, like what um, like what kind of when did you start getting into computers and really uh? Well, really, I mean, there? uh, you know, I guess I'm one of the still one of the first generations that kind of grew up with computers in the house. I had an Apple IIc when I was growing up. Yeah. And, and I knew that thing inside and out. I knew all the hardware and like how everything worked and just kind of like geeked out on that aspect. And, uh, but it wasn't until, oh, geez, like maybe uh, 98 or so that uh, I actually got online. And how I got online was actually with a game console. So I bought a uh, used Sega Saturn with the modem connection and was using that browser online and basically taught myself how to build my first computer through using, you know, that is, that is my, my kind of bootloader. And um, then just, you know, just kind of uh, was fascinated with hardware mostly and how everything worked and uh, decided that it was a, a good 
a good marketable skill to acquire because since I was, uh, you know, went through the public gulag system, I really didn't didn't have any marketable skills outside of when I got out of school. Yeah, and it was actually, you know, the the best job I could get at the time was uh, actually telemarketing, which was lots of fun for an introvert. <laughs> and uh, basically, I I decided that that was probably my my best route out of that that type of life was just to uh, do, you know, independent certification. That's the route I went. I didn't go to school or anything. I uh, just got some independent certifications and, you know, eventually got jobs shoulder to shoulder with people with master's degrees. So, it, you know, yeah. you know I, I'm totally hack schooled in everything I do. Um, so did you work in IT then for a while? Yeah, I worked in IT. I did, uh, I did, you know, all your basic stuff. I did help desk. I did uh, systems analysis. I did um, like uh, top tier support for different things. Um, just, uh, just like worked with a wide variety of systems and operating systems that most people haven't even heard of and stuff. And just really got a uh, a very broad grammar base for. For IT, and I really started getting into Linux because I had a couple friends of mine that they actually built the first ISP in the little town I was from, and they ran it on Linux. And I was always fascinated with uh, just how well it worked. I mean, they they had uptime of like a year on their server, and it, especially at that point with Windows, you have to reboot. You'd had to reboot it at least once a day for. Um, for it to run right because of just all the memory leaks everything had, you would like be, you know, completely memoryless <laughs> at the end of the day if you didn't reboot. So I was, you know, it, it's stability and, um, and you know, that fascinated me. So I kind of started leaning to that and uh, I started experimenting with it. I built some servers. I built some uh, standalone routers and access devices and, some other, you know, network appliance type things out of it. And then I started experimenting with it as a desktop operating system. Yeah. Yeah. When, uh, so when was that? Like when, uh, when did you start uh, messing around with it or what, uh, what distro did you end up using? Like well, my first distro I played with was an early version of Slackware that I installed with floppy disks. Yeah. There were like 22 floppy disks, I think it was. Um, and that's back when it was, you know, it, it was quite an, an ordeal to install a Linux distribution. Yeah. But um, the, the distribution that probably uh, got me to use it on the desktop was likely, I would say, probably Caldera Linux, which people don't really, Remember. it's kind of like been erased. But uh, yeah, yeah Caldera Linux, then Mandrake Linux. Um, and of course, Mandrake Linux was a version of Red Hat Linux that was uh, basically simplified and streamlined for desktop operating system. It had a lot of stuff that worked out of the box. Um, so, you know, and then probably around 2001, I just, I kind of scrapped Windows altogether. I was actually on track to get my Microsoft Certified Systems Engineer certification. And... Uh, I didn't like the way they were doing things as far as the way they were treating their their certified people and making people retest and you know just just a lot of um rent seeking that was going on with the whole system and I just uh I I knew that if if I uh if I gave some you know short term um, gave up some short-term comfort and embraced Linux that I would have a, uh, it would be, you know, a better, better deal for me in the long term. And it really has. That's pretty awesome, man. Um, for most people, this probably is going way over their head cause they're just really like, what is Linux? But, uh, Linux is a, uh, it's an alternate, alternate operating system. You might see that, uh, and this is just for listeners, um, that it's it's an alternative. It's a free alternative to Apple and Microsoft. So OS 10 
Like OS 10 to me is really, I think it's just the Darwin distro. In reality, like Steve Jobs just kind of ripped off. Uh, Linux said he he didn't, but it just kind of created his diff his own distro. I mean, it's pretty. Oh, yeah. It's the it's the same it's the same thing as as OS 10. It just doesn't. It's not going to communicate with all the old programs. Um, that they don't communicate with the same programs, but they're both Unix based. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's pretty interesting, man. Uh, I you know I'd messed with it quite a bit. I watched this documentary on Netflix in like 2008 called Revolution OS. Oh yeah, that was pretty good. Yeah, and then I um and then I just started putting on a, a I tried a bunch on my netbook and then um I ran Linux for a while off my netbook and ultimately I think because it didn't support Netflix and some other things like but now it does. Um, yeah. I'd, I'd switched off and now I think I. I have a bunch of old machines sitting around. I'm about to move, and I'm definitely going to turn one into a media server. And um, I don't know what I'll do with the other ones, but I'm sure I'll put them to good use. Like you can, but, uh, you know, it's, it's not real resource intensive. Like a lot of the times what people don't get is, you know, Apple and Microsoft are going to keep putting these updates on your machine. So eventually your machines, the hardware of your machines cannot handle the operating system. So they're really resource intensive meaning they're going to eat up just the operating system itself is going to eat up a lot of your processing power and memory on your computer so, oh sure i mean it's one of the biggest things is the memory yeah. the actual ram usage um with uh like with these neuron machines a lot of them like the hundred dollar ones come with one, only one gig of memory but you'd never know yeah like it's they're they're very responsive all the applications run, you know, perfectly. It can do uh, a good deal of multitasking even. Like when I, when I was like the prototype machine that I was doing the development on, um, I was using that exclusively for a long time because I was sitting in front of it all the time doing this. So, um, you know, you would forget that it was hardware that's like eight years old real quick if uh, – you didn't see the uh, the older styling on the case, you know. Yeah, no, that's pretty awesome, man. So, like, I'm so just to change gears here. Like, I, I know um, growing season is upon us, and I'm about to start my own endeavor in a in a market garden. Um, how so? How did um? So when did you and Karen start doing that? When did you guys start uh, diving in and and just like kind of just getting really into uh, permaculture and everything else. Cause I mean, a lot of your guys' posts are about in that, uh, Agora, Agropia. I keep fucking that name up. Sorry about that. That's name. all right, dude. <laughs> but, uh, I, a lot of those posts are great. Like whether it be with chickens and everything else like that. So like, uh, when did you guys really start getting, getting into that? Cause I know we talked about herbs and stuff like that earlier, but you know, when did, well, when did you dive in and when did you kind of start leaving the, the IT field and, and want to just kind of go into your own agorist adventures? Well, um, we lived in a uh, kind of a rundown area of Pittsburgh when we lived in the city when I was doing most of my IT stuff. And uh, she was going to school for nursing. And basically, we started uh, just gardening where we were. We had a front yard garden, which was all Karen's doing. She decided one day that she was going to plant our little like hundred square foot front yard with some tomatoes and stuff so we could have some fresh, fresh vegetables. And, uh, we had already been into the, um, herbalist side of things. So we, uh, we, we were pretty, pretty skilled at, at, uh, the basics of growing things and we before we lived in Pittsburgh we actually lived as a uh, farm hands for a summer for a uh, a small small sustenance farm so we had you know we got experience there with the techniques they used and we got some livestock experience with like rabbits and cows and chickens um so, I mean, that's that's really where we started from. And then once we were able to get out of where we were living, we uh, 
we bought a property with a few acres in a rural area that uh, at one point had been farmed. It was, uh, it was like on a hill, but it was, it was terraced. And uh, we just started doing experimentation, and I, I do, did a lot of research. That's kind of my strong point is researching systems and how to improve them and stuff like that. So I was more in the uh, research of the systemic things, and she was maybe more into the uh, practical implementations of different things. We work really well together as a team that way. Yeah. So, um, you know, I researched new ideas, and then we'd put them into practice and experiment and see what worked. And we did, you know, every year is just another experiment to see what works and what doesn't. Um, like, for instance, one of the first years, we decided we were going to see how, you know, how good of a harvest you could get with the, the most minimal amount of prep and um, maintenance. You know, we basically just turned over some soil and uh, planted some seeds and just let them go, didn't weed them or anything. And we kind of got a mental baseline for, you know, how productive that style of farming could be. And we've just kind of gone from there. Yeah. Did, uh, well, and how, how productive was that? It was actually fairly decent. And maybe it's because we planted the stuff where there was an established garden bed at some point. It yeah. was probably amended. Um, there are, I have found since then, probably better ways to do the kind of laissez faire gardening than that. Um, like what we do now primarily is we uh, use a technique called sheet mulching. And that's where you just pile a bunch of organic matter on top of, you know, it could be anything. It, it could be lawn. It could be some uh, you know, patch of, you know, quote unquote weeds mowed down or something. And um, you just plant right through that mulching material. And what we use is a uh, cardboard as a, as a uh, weed barrier that will actually turn into topsoil over time. And then we, uh, we buy um, tree prunings off of a local um, tree service. So they come and they dump, dump truckloads of wood chips. And they're not just wood chips. They're the whole tree ground up. And that's so much it's, – it's a different product. It's so much better because you have um, a bunch of different types of uh, – nutrients in there and you have a better more favorable carbon to nitrogen ratio so they break down better and what it does is it just creates this phenomenal soil not only from that stuff decaying on top but it makes a uh, uh, a pretty much perfect habitat for earthworms so earthworms just flock under it and they do most of the uh, the subsoil work for you while the uh, topsoil is being amended with the uh, rotting organic matter. So do you guys have raised beds then or is it do you guys just uh... Well we have a combination. What we're actually doing here is this is an example property of a, uh, a, a culmination of a bunch of different systems that are possible. Like w the way we have it organized is we have I don't know if you're f really familiar with um, permaculture zoning. You have a uh, a bunch of different designated areas that are specifically set up for growing different types of things and having different types of um, different types types of systems going on there. Like you, it starts from zone zero to like zone seven. But in a nutshell, what we're doing is we have a half acre that is fenced in that would be, you know, a normal lot's yard. And that is considered our zone one. And what we're doing there is we have examples of systems that you can do in an area that size. Yeah. And, and we're actually going to narrow it down more. And um, even like right next to the house, we're going to have examples of things you could do on a balcony in an urban lot or, um, you know, basically we're, we're trying to show how, how scalable these design concepts are. 
Like they're scalable from a porch all the way to a multi-acre property. And that's where our other zones come in. We have 12 and a half acres here. So after you get out of our half acre example of a, uh, you know, kind of a microcosm of a permaculture system, then you have the larger systems. Like we have mobile pig pens. We have, um, you know, we're setting up chicken tractors. We have a uh, acre surface area pond that's stocked with fish that we're using for irrigation. We have um, intensive garden beds that are done in a variety of methods to kind of be examples of the different methods you can use. We have a, uh, an area that we're designating for um, uh, kind of like a, a pre-built campsite for people that want to come here and learn what we're doing. Yeah. Um, and we're going to have examples of different types of uh, um, alternative housing there. Like, for instance, we already started a earthbagged structure that uh, we're calling the Hobbit House, which is kind of like a little Hobbit house into the, into the man-made hill. And uh, we're going to, I'm um, collecting materials to build a, um, oh, a, a tiny home on the back of a trailer. That's awesome. That's, that's going to be there for people to stay in. So you'll have your choice between that, a Hobbit house. Um, we'll probably do a small-scale Earthship there, too. That's awesome. Um, and, of course, we'll have, you know, alternative energy um, working, working demonstrations of different systems there, too, powering that part of the property. So, I mean, we're, do we're doing all that. Um, and we do a little bit more each year. We are very, very limited in manpower and funds. It's basically just us. And uh, only one of us is working a regular job right now. So, you know, progress is very slow, but it is progress. We, uh, we probably put in oh, close to 2,000 square feet of garden last year in addition to the 1,000 square foot we had. Um, right now we're moving the pigs across one of our paddocks and mobile cages or, you know, mobile pig pens. And we're planting uh, better forage for our animals in the wake of the pigs. We're letting them do the, uh, the plowing for us. And then we have the chickens go through. That's kind of like they, uh, Joel Salatin style. Like I've seen him on. Uh, oh, exactly. Yeah. My friend in Marysville, my friend Joel, um, he was doing that with his pigs. And the, when they, they, they came out from the county and they said to him, uh, your pigs are going to die by doing it like that. Pigs aren't supposed to eat grass. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. Well, like, I tell you what. It's such some, a huge disconnect, some, man. I know. Um, some of the uh, popular breeds of pigs have been so, like with selective breeding, they have bred them to the point where they can no longer function at all without intensive management. They can't rear, rear piglets. They can't, you know, forage for their feed. I mean, they, they've basically unbred the pig out of the pig. And uh, what we're working with is we're using Asian heritage hogs. And um, those were imported in the pet, from the pet industry into the U.S. as, you know, pot-bellied pigs. Yeah. But what, what they are is they're a, uh, a heritage breed from um, Central Asia that would have been the small homestead hog that uh, that the uh, sustenance farmers would have been using there and still use, and they're what they are is they're just they're a more manageable size for a homestead. They're uh, you know you butcher them at about eighty pounds, so you know there's not a lot of food preservation that has to go on. Yeah, um, they're you're able to handle them with one person and not like having to have a front end loader or like a bunch of people to move them around. Um, you can keep the meat on the hoof for as long as you want and not have to use, you know, refrigeration or freezing or other, um, other preservation methods. So they have a lot of things going for them for the small scale. Um, and they're also, they're was, what is termed a land race variety. And they, a land race is basically one step away from being wild. 
Yeah. So they have, uh, they're just domesticated enough to um, manage them. To not grow tusks and kill people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and what's actually really interesting is since most of the breeding stock in the U.S. has actually come from lines that were bred for pets, they're actually very docile and well-tempered for a hog. Like we, we have one that's one of our one of ours is an excellent mother, and she'll let you go in and do stuff in her pen and even be around her her uh, her piglets, you know. And that like some, you know, some farm hogs they will try to murder you if yeah. you get around them in that you know in that condition. Yeah. What now? Um. Now, how so? You have you have chigs. You have chigs. Yeah, that's a new breed that Monsanto <laughs> just created. The chicken chig. Ch- chigs from Monsanto. <laughs> yeah, chigs. The chicken pig. It lays eggs, and it has a beak, but it has hooves. Um, not not for eating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, um, so you have pigs, chickens. Um, I know, like just reading. I've, I've been reading the Market Gardener, um, by uh, Jean Pierre or Jean Martin Forti. And, um, I mean, he kind of stressed the, the importance of chicken poop and in, in, in creating your own fertilizer and everything else like that. Cause I mean, from the sound of it, you guys, you know, cultivate your own soil, compost, fertilizer, um, the whole nine yards. Like now you were saying about where your pigs were from and I'm, I'm kind of jumping all over the place, but I'm, I'm excited to talk about farming jam and not that I wasn't oh, so excited to talk about computers, but it's like, man, I'm like. The sea, it's going to be like my first growing season and we want to do, uh, I already have like an urban lot for my new place I'm moving into later on today. And it's, wow. and so like I have uh, an urban lot that I, I'm going to, I, I paid the city like 10 bucks to take care of it, but I can grow food and do whatever I want with that food and hopefully get the, the whole community involved, um, the whole street involved to start working on it. But um, that's going to take some time. But uh, you know, so I'm just kind of excited, and it, and it just sounds like, I mean, like, just stuff that you're doing, like, you're going to have an earth ship, a tiny house. It's like, man, this is all the, this is all the shit that I look into, man. Like, I'm so excited because you're, you're actually doing what I want to be doing, like, within the next 10 years. You know what I mean? Like, and I think, like, just having that, 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 that homestead, like, just homesteading. And uh, so, you know, not to get too, too all over the place, but... Uh, so, like, for your chickens, like, I know my friend Joel was saying that there's certain chickens that you can get that actually lay eggs year-round. And, like, because a lot of people, when they get chickens, they don't lay eggs year-round because they're not adjusted for the climate. Um, can, is there any, is that, is that, the, are you familiar with that? Well, I, I know there are, there are different breeds of chickens that will, you know, that will lay better than others and lay more, you know, more eggs and have more laying days a year. Um, a lot of them, you know, we've had very good luck with a, with a hybrid breed called the golden comet and they're one of those. Um, but really with getting them to lay in the winter, a lot of it has to do with, excuse me, available light. Um, you have to trick their systems into thinking it's not winter and, uh, you have to have a, some type of heated place for them or the eggs will freeze anyway. So we just we don't really worry about them laying in, in the dead of winter because by the time I get out to get their eggs, they're frozen and cracked. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Um, our best layers are actually ducks. Really? So you guys have ducks as well? Yeah, we have a we have a flock of khaki Campbell ducks, and they're a hybrid breed from Europe that is uh, that was bred particularly for laying eggs. So they are an egg breed. Their eggs are slightly bigger than a large, when I say large chicken egg, I mean like a large homestead chicken egg, which is at least 25% bigger than what they call extra large at the store. Yeah. But their eggs are slightly bigger than that. And um, they're really prolific. They lay about an egg a day and they laid well into the winter. The fun part though is finding their eggs because they, they'll, they'll make random nests throughout the property and it's like an egg hunt to find them. But sometimes you'll find a nest with maybe uh, 20 some eggs in it. Yeah. That's, that's crazy, man. And they're not fertilized eggs. So ducks will just lay eggs like, like chickens will, just free range eggs. Yeah. 
Now we have a male duck, so they're fertile eggs. Oh, okay, okay. Um, and we've they've actually hatched a couple. Um, but you know, the survival rate is very very low. They're they were such the low person on the food chain. Everything wants to eat a baby duck. Oh. We've we've lost them to mainly cats and a <laughs> dog once and. Oh man, that's interesting, man. That's so cool, though. Like, I I didn't know a lot about ducks. I know um, I listened to this American Life episode once of like this French guy, this guy in France where like you know Fargois comes from, and he would sell ducks for Fargois, but he just like created this environment for ducks that they would just want to to eat a ton of food, and they would just become these humongous fat ducks just because they were so comfortable being around him. Um, and then uh, you make Farquaad ducks, right? Am I just, I just kind of thought about that, jamming like, am I just talking shit right now? Am I not really knowing what I'm talking about? Like, Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I I'm think not familiar. Farquaad was like something that they, uh, they made illegal in California because in the States, like just like anything, like we kind of like, you know, fuck with nature. And, uh, and so they made Fargua illegal, um, which is, uh, okay, yeah, let me see, it's, it's okay, Fargo, okay, I'm sorry, man. I just, I just trolled this conversation and uh, was, like, looking for this, because I was thinking, because I'm pretty sure it was a duck, and he would just, these ducks would just get so fat, and then, uh, um, uh, they would just na- he could sell them to restaurants naturally, without having to force feed these ducks until they died. Like that was pretty oh, much what okay. they were doing, and it was like it was like a big big liver. Um, let me let me look it up, man. But uh, how do you guys? Uh, so do you guys sell your your produce then? Did you guys do you guys do farmers markets and that type of stuff? Um, not at this point. Basically. Uh we're, we're trying to get to the point where we have enough surplus to do that. It's, I mean, the profit margins are so thin doing that anyway. Yeah. That, uh, you know, we, we have, a, we have a, a few friends that we sell stuff to. Um, we have some other product, products that we uh, are going to have small quantities of for, you know, you know, friends and whatnot. Like we make wine and stuff like that, you know. Basically, the the main the main goal with the homesteading is to reach a level of sustenance, and then once we get there, then then we'll start considering ways to get you know get some uh, get some resources for the uh, surplus that we have. That makes sense. Like I know, um, you know, a lot of people, and and I know, like uh, you know, something that I've looked into a lot with like researching, like the urban farming was like the the sales side of it, just because, I mean, it's just me. Like I'm not, if I can, if I can have my whole garden kind of organized and I ran into some guys that were already doing it. Like we have a bunch of farmer's markets here in Columbus. And, uh, but not only just like to, to, to just the aspect of the, the farmer's market part, but also just when you think about, uh, um, finding people that you can get signed up to just get produce packs from you. I know that's, that's kind of popular as well. And, yeah, uh, that's the route we would take. Yeah. Because and, we want to keep it totally agorist, too. And yeah. that kind of adds a monkey wrench into things at times. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, but it, So I did look up it. Frogwalk can be uh, goose or duck, and it was geese that this guy had in France. So when you said that they were from Europe, um, and like that's what I immediately thought of and trolled our conversation just with my random Drew Sample thoughts. Um, but, uh, but that was something that I, I was just thinking about, man. I'm, I'm sorry that I, I just asked you a question sorry, dude. and then steamrolled it. I mean, I, I drew, I drew up conversations quite a bit, Jamin, but you've, you've listened to the podcast, so I'm sure you were aware. Yep. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, so that's pretty cool though. So you're going to have an earth ship, you're going to have a tiny house. Um, you're building a hobbit house. Um, what do you, uh, I don't. Like whenever I see those, like those, I guess like non-traditional homes, I get super excited about it, man. Like I'm like, oh, that's so badass. I would want to live in a place like that. Like I think uh, it's it's pretty sweet. So you ha- so you guys have uh, 12 acres then. Um, 
at your at your property yeah that's pretty awesome and so how far are you guys out from the city well we're we're about 20 minutes either way from the nearest um decent sized town and we're about two hours from the closest city that's that makes sense um that's pretty awesome. So now for, for, and again, I'm going all over the place again, Jim, and I'm sorry. Uh, so now when you guys grow vegetables, like what all vegetables do you guys, do you guys try to grow everything like lettuces, tomatoes, peppers? Yeah, we pretty, we do pretty much grow an example of all the major types of vegetables. Um, what I really like to concentrate on are, well, I guess there are, there are different levels of things. Like I really like stuff that are that are uh, cut and come again. Basically, stuff that you can grow, harvest, and then it'll just come back. Like I'm a big fan of growing sprouting broccoli, and we always have a very large sprouting broccoli patch. So as soon as it comes into production, we have broccoli all year from the same footprint. Um, we also have the intensive beds that we grow more seasonal crops that you have to wait all season to harvest. Um, we did uh, my like 500 square feet of potatoes last year. And uh, we use a bunch of different methods. Like potatoes are the biggest calorie crop we grow. Yeah. Um, and then there's stuff like uh, we grow squashes. Um, we grow a lot of different varieties of those. We grow a lot of um, a lot of different varieties of beans, um, a lot of varieties of kale and lettuce, um, and we have some some more uh, maybe uh, maybe I'd call them non-traditional garden crops. You know, we uh, through through the margins of the, my property, I've planted a I don't know if you're familiar with Jerusalem artichoke. No, that sounds pretty awesome. What it is, it's a plant in the sunflower family that gets a potato-like tuber on them, and they can actually be invasive if they're in the right place. So what you do is if you get a small patch started, every year they will just continue to multiply on their own and just take over the area with food without any user intervention. So I have uh, patches of those started all over the 12 acres and that's one of the plants we're planting behind the pigs. And there's uh, a lot of permaculture systems kind of use this as a keystone plant for animal feed because the whole plant is edible for, you know, the, the, the big sunflowery stalks are edible as, a, uh, as like a uh, fodder crop. Um, pigs will self-harvest the roots and eat them, like the potato-like tubers. So we have large patches of those growing both in the intensive garden beds that we converted and the uh, all throughout the property. And so we have a lot of fruit trees that we've started. We have a small established orchard with apples and pears. Um, Karen this year has uh, really gotten into grafting. So we have a lot of uh, wild cherry trees and a lot of uh, crab apples and um, hawthorns. So she's been going around this year grafting peaches and cherries to the wild cherry trees and um good you know good eating varieties of apples to the apple trees and hawthorns so we're starting our food forest that way we've all the rootstock has mostly grown already and we're just excuse me grafting varieties to it that are that get you know better fruit than the wild varieties that's so cool man like that's uh that is just so cool. Um, so you guys, so when you say grafting, what what does that mean by grafting? I'm sorry. Basically, you're fusing the uh, tissue of one plant to another, one tree to another. Um, there's there are a bunch of different ways to do it. Um, we've been uh, mostly doing bark bark grafting, and basically, you make it you. Uh, you prune the, the uh, intended tree that you're going to graft to. You make an incision in the bark, like a slit down the bark, where, right where you pruned it. And um, you take little, little um, pencil-sized branches called scions. 
and you basically whittle them to a wedge and insert them in there and cover it with wax and tape. And eventually the, uh, the tissue will join together and um, that scion that you put there will become a branch that produces the fruit that the tree you took it from will produce. So, so like, will a tree grow two different types of fruit then? Oh yeah, you can make you can make trees that grow like ten different varieties of apples that way. That's so crazy! I had no idea you could do that. Well, that's how most commercial fruit is grafted, or I mean, is uh, propagated. See, it's really hard to propagate named varieties of fruit by seed because you're never sure what they were pollinated with. Yeah. Usually, with you know, especially like an apple. Like if you just grow apples from the apple apple seed that you get from the apple varieties you buy at the store, it's going to grow whatever that apple was pollinated with and not necessarily the apple you bought. And a lot of times they revert to more of a crab apple, like a little sour, um, you know, more wild apple if you grow them by seed. So what you do is you grow rootstock by seed and you grow rootstock that has been acclimated to the area that you're you know, that you wanted to produce in, and then you graft a variety to that root stock that's going to produce the fruit you want. So it's usually, it would be, so it's usually like you could, you can have, like you couldn't have a tree grow a pear and an apple. It would have to be different kinds of this, of apples. Yeah. Um, you can grow, you can graft different varieties of pears to pear trees and different varieties of apples to apple trees and some other trees related to apples. See, apples are actually in the rose family. Really? And um, there's a really good hedgerow plant called a hawthorn, and it's mistaken for a crab apple a lot. They get little crab apple like fruits on them, but they uh, they're another plant that apples will graft to because it's in the same family. And like stuff like peaches and cherries, and even uh, I believe almonds and, and some of the nuts are considered stone fruit, and they're all graftable to each other. So you can graft like a peach to a cherry tree, and vice versa. Really. So you could have a tree that grows cherries and peaches. Yeah, that's fucking crazy. I had no idea. I uh, there's so much there's so much to learn about nature. Jesus, I feel uh, I feel I feel really uh, I don't know. I'm like really excited to hear that, Jim. And I'm like, no way. That sounds like something out of a fantasy book. Yeah, I'm the assistant in that operation. Karen's the tree surgeon. That's awesome. She, she's really into it. She got some special tools this year or last year for her birthday, actually, that's what she wanted. So she's all set up. And uh, so she's trying different methods and I'm assisting her operations. And so what all livestock do you have? I, we were, we started talking about that and I, um, I just drew up the conversation. So you have pigs, ducks, chickens. Um, what other animals do you have? Um, basically pigs, ducks, chickens, and rabbits and rabbits. Rabbits are great because they grow so fast. Like you can, well, they they breed so fast, and you can, um, yeah. you can eat them pretty quick or use them for different things. But they're also really good for, for like your grass and and everything else like that. So do you like rotate the animals through different different areas of the of the grass? Then like, um, kind of like what Joel Salton was saying, he does. Yeah, we. Uh, I'm I'm a big fan of his stuff. Um, I've gotten a lot of ideas you know, reading his books and watching his videos and articles and stuff. I used to subscribe to uh, Acres, which is the uh, kind of the trade publication for organic farming that he writes for a lot. Um, but yeah, like it's inspired by that. And what we do is uh, right now we're doing the mobile hog pens and then we just have our chickens free ranging for the time being and they just follow the hogs that way. Um, but very soon, as soon as I clean out their tractor, they're going to go back into their tractor. And I have a kind of unique um, type of tractor that I built. It's a large A-frame, and it's bi-leveled. Like, they have a coop on top, and then there runs on the bottom. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's really large for that type of tractor, too. It's uh, 6 by 12, I think it is. And uh, we moved that around the half acre. That's an example of what you can do in the small lot and keep them contained and happy. So we move them around in that, and they fertilize and uh, till, and then we throw seed in their wake of different things. But uh, 
we are eventually going to follow the pig pens with some more Salatin-esque tractors in the uh, the field. We have a lot of predator predator pressure here. Yeah. We have hawks, we have owls, we have weasels, we have foxes, we have coyotes. I mean, um, we have possums and we have raccoons. You know, everything wants to eat chickens. Yeah, chickens like, are hard. Like they're um, they're like the predator's favorite thing besides the baby duck. Yeah, <laughs> and the the ducks, um, the the ducks we have right now. Well, the first batch of ducks were given to us by somebody who raised them with chickens. And they didn't even, they had wanted nothing to do with our pond. And we put them up by the pond and uh, hoping they would like, you know, take to the pond and act like ducks. But what would happen when a predator would come, they wouldn't run into the pond for protection. They'd run into the weeds and get stuck and get eaten. They'd like run the opposite way. It was uh, really interesting. <laughs> but we have, uh, we have like, uh, I think six khaki Campbells and a brooder right now that are about ready to go out and we have a mobile, well, we have a floating duck house that I made out of a, uh, rooftop cargo carrier for a car, like one of those plastic ones. Yeah. And I made a raft out of, uh, some, uh, treated plywood and some, uh, styrofoam insulation. That's awesome. So we're, we're going to see if we can get those guys to, uh, take to the water and use that mobile, that, or that uh, that floating um, house that's going to be in the middle of the pond, which would be very good protection against predators. Like the other ducks didn't take to it; they were like, "What the hell are you trying to do?" You know, we don't want to go in there. It was actually pretty pathetic for ducks not to like the water. Yeah, because they thought they were chickens. Yep, they thought they were chickens. That is so, that is so weird. Um. That's funny, though, man. I mean, that's kind of like humans messing with mate nature again, right? Like, uh, these people are like, well, we'll just raise our birds together, and then we can sell these birds. And and then you, you sell someone a duck that thinks it's a chicken, so it runs in the weeds and gets killed by predators. Oh, there, there is so much allegory to human livestock farming when you, you know, if, if you're familiar with... Uh, with both things, you make a lot of connections. Like if you read it, like for example, if you read a book about hog raising, yeah. you will see so many similarities to people in, cact- in any type of captivity as to pigs. Yeah. Um, and just like, it's, I find it so allegorical too that uh, like my rabbits, if you leave their cages open, they have no desire to leave them. Yeah. You know, the cage door can be open for days and they'll just they'll just sit in their little you know 32 inch by 32 inch cell and um be content like <laughs> that's the way it's always been um it might be scary out there being free yeah. you know what i mean it's my buddy you know, my buddy told me this uh this interesting study that they did on rats with heroin so they like they put a rat, a rat in a small cage and they had like uh, one bowl filled with uh, water, the other one filled with heroin or some drug I can't remember. And in the small cage, the rat just just all it did was eat the eat the drug and just lay there and just just get doped up all the time. And then they gave a different rat like a bigger cage with more things to do and more options, like you know, like a running wheel and all this other stuff to play on. And there were, all the rat would do is drink the water and play on the stuff. So I don't know why I thought about that, but I, I just did. It's like, you know, if you just small confinement sort of deal, not giving, if you don't have anything to do, like you're not going to, you know what I'm saying? If that made any sense. Or did well, I yeah, just, uh, that's, that's one of the, one of the main things that I've observed during my studies and just uh, my experience of, you know, managing animals, um, you know, those type of things are actually even term, termed vices. They're termed vices in livestock management. Like if, if you don't keep your animals content enough, they'll develop vices just like people. Yeah. If, you know, if they feel the walls are closing in on them, they won't be productive. They'll, uh, you know, pigs will do weird stuff. They'll hurt themselves. They'll, they'll eat other pigs' tails off. They'll, um, you know, there's just just the stress of captivity. And I really think that's the, 
and kind of the dark side of enlightenment philosophy was to uh, keep people so content in their captivity that they didn't develop these vices the way uh, you know chattel slaves did. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to think like we're not. It's like the more that people try to disconnect themselves from the rest of the animal kingdom, it's like they're not that much different than us. I mean, yeah, we're higher up on the food chain, but they're not. You you have to treat them. You have to treat them with love. Like if you're gonna raise animals, even if you are gonna eat them, you have to love them. You can't just treat them like shit. And no, oh, definitely. Yeah, and I think that's uh, that's interesting, man. Um, but uh, Jam, I'd love to have you again to talk about more farming, man. Uh, we're almost at at an hour here, and uh, man, like I'm once I get more farming experience, I'm probably gonna want to pick your brain a lot, and I can I can ask you for some advice. I'll probably still hit you up, but. Um, uh, how can people get a hold of you and how can people go to your website to get your um, learning machines and and uh, the the mobile DAWs that you that you're developing right now? Okay. Um, uh, first they can friend me on Facebook. Um, it's just Jamin Baconic. And uh, I have a uh, a website up for the project. It's neuron.semisynthetic.net. And um, there's all the information about the systems on there. Um, I have pricing and availability, and um, I do take cryptocurrency, so that's another thing. And um, I'm actually would like to uh, branch this out a little bit into um, doing some some charity. I'd like to get these systems in as many kids' hands as possible. So if anybody wants to donate hardware or money to the project, that I'll definitely see it gets into the hands of the people who need it. Like I know people off the top of my head that I'd love to just send machines to right now that have gifted kids but are, you know, slaving in the nine to five and just barely making bills. Yeah. Um, so, and then the uh, Agora at Agricola group just submit an, you know, a request to join it. I have it closed just because of all the spammers and scammers that one gets in a group when it's not. And I don't have the, I really don't have the time to deal with it. Yeah. Um, it's time consuming enough weeding them out from the uh, request to join it than uh, going on there and deleting posts all, every day. So, but I mean, we pretty much, you know, we talk about, you know, autonomy and gardening and, uh, permaculture and stuff like that there. And there's also the Neuron. I have a Facebook page for Neuron. It's just Neuron Open Source Learning Project. Um, you can like that page and I post uh, interesting things having to do with uh, technological autonomy. Um, and I'd, I'd love to talk to you about that at some point too. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can, uh, we can, we can definitely get into that. Uh, we could definitely record another episode, man. There's so much stuff I want to talk to you about, man. You're such a, uh, I mean, such a, uh, Renaissance man. I mean, you build stuff. I mean, you, you, you've carved, you've carved your own world out of, of our society. You know what I mean? And I think that's, that's awesome, man. I mean, you, I, I'd love to to check out like when you were talking about your farm setup and everything. I'm like, man, I hope you. I wish you had a YouTube. Do you have a YouTube channel that shows all this? Yeah, shit you actually, do? yeah, I have a. Uh, the YouTube channel is the Liberty Farmer. Um, and I have some videos of a walkthrough last. Uh, it was probably late spring last year. I have a walkthrough of my Zone One, the half acre, showing some of the systems and. Uh, and then I have a uh, kind of a reprise to that a little bit later in the year. And I plan on doing some more videos. It's just it's just with all the stuff that we're doing to actually have a camera. And, yeah, because you know, you're doing and, all your own vet editing and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm doing not just the editing and everything, but it's just like sometimes you need all the hands actually doing the work and not someone just standing there recording it. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's like it's, it's hard to find hard to find the time like that's my biggest thing is you know finding equilibrium of time to uh do all this to uh do all the stuff that my ambitions drive me to yeah yeah it's it's it goes back to us being slaves of our own ambitions exactly but uh well yeah man i definitely want to have you on again um i had a blast talking to you um 
I just got to. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't end it. But I gotta. I gotta move today, guys. So I gotta move to my house. <laughs> so I start oh, my own man. farm. And ask, that's awesome. Yeah, man. Just in the city, man. I'm gonna. My whole yard's gonna be a garden. So, uh, I'm excited, man. I want to be like that. Uh, that Jules guy in San Diego. I forget his name. Um, but uh, anyways, everybody, thanks for listening again. Definitely reach out to Jammin if you have questions. That join that Facebook group. It's a um, as long as you're not gonna be an asshole and spam. Try to join that Facebook group, and and I mean, there's there's fountains of knowledge on there. Everybody shares some really cool posts. Um, I always try to share them on my own timeline because they're so cool. Um, but uh, anyways, guys, thanks a lot for listening, and uh, and uh, look forward to getting more content out to you soon. Same things on our minds as you boys do. Same things on our minds as you boys do. So.